with okay. me as well. Yeah. All right. So um, we started with the uh, uh, why does uh, the the practice of meditation to the raw beginner? Why does it look like there's so much diversity? And where is the unity in it? And the answer then would be similar to like music, that there are uh, certain skills that are that need to be developed, and that those skills in music um, operate within all music. For instance, meter and timing, uh, uh, chord structure, uh, music theory, all of that kind of stuff. Uh, is the same for all of the different uh, kinds of music. Um, and so uh, we can see that also the same way with, with uh, this practice that has been come to be known in the, in the West as uh, meditation. The first thing that I should say, and in fact one of my favorite topics, is the fact that the biggest problem I see with uh, Buddhism coming to the West is not that it's coming in such variety, but that it's coming with such bad translations. That the word meditation, in fact, is a Christian word, just like almost all of the words that are in Buddhism. It was uh, original translations were done by Christians, so naturally they're going to have a, an entire Christian-like language to describe Buddhism, to where in fact um, uh, many of those terms are actually quite misleading. And so we'll have to uh, uh, discuss with that. I would I would say possibly. The, uh, there are several words that we can mention right away. One would be meditation, another one would be nibbana, another one would be samadhi or concentration. Um, these, are the, these words are often uh, misunderstood by Westerners. And so rather than using the word meditation, I'll introduce the word anapanasati. And Anapanasati is the Buddha's method uh, for uh, skill development. That in fact, uh, Anapanasati um, is based upon the four foundations of mindfulness, the body, the feeling, the mind, and the mind's objects. Uh, and so Anapanasati is a practice that develops skills in all four of these areas. So in that way, you can say that Anapanasati is actually a skill to be developed. Uh, but another way of looking at Anapanasati is Anapanasati is actually the practice uh, to develop the skills that are actually in the Eightfold Noble Path. That everything starts with uh, the, the overall teaching of the Buddha starts at the top and the top down. The Buddha, in fact, in one of the sutras says, I only teach one thing, just one thing. And so if you can learn that one thing, then you've got the entire teachings of the Buddha. And what that one thing is, is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda means to see uh, the suffering that are the um, uh, dissatisfaction in in the moment, in the mind in the moment, and then come out of that suffering right there and then, in that moment. Now, generally the Western mentality is that, oh, I have to work a long time with no results. And then all of a sudden, I'm going to get a whole lot of good results, big results. All of a sudden, after a long, it's like crossing a desert with no water and then finally reaching the goal of an oasis. And then you can have all the water you want. Okay. This is how we go to school. Learn your ABCs. Clean your room. We tell our children how to live 
with, and uh, at best, it's a weak uh, promise for uh, a reward in the future. But this practice of Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda means to see the Dukkha right now and to come out of it right now. So it's got rewards built along uh, the whole thing. Uh, but the Western mentality is, say, Dukkha, I see Dukkha, I see more Dukkha, there's Dukkha there, yeah, I'm watching it, I'm noting it, I'm taking, I'm seeing it all, I really, really understand Dukkha, now let's have some more Dukkha. Dukkha, 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 and I'm going really deep in my meditation, oh, so much Dukkha. And what insights I'm getting, oh, so much insight from so much Dukkha. And this is the way that many people practice their meditation. But the skill that they need developed is not to see the dukkha so much as to be able to change it, to get out of it. And to do that immediately, to change the mind immediately. So this idea then of the whole teaching of the Buddha being dukkha, dukkha naroda, means to see it and to come out of it. And to do that every time. So in the beginning, it's hard to see the dukkha, and it takes effort to come out of it. But as skills develop, you can see the dukkha uh, easier. You can see it as dukkha when it's not nearly as strong as it used to be. And you can deal with it more and more um, effectively and easily so that you can come into having a happy life. Because you've been practicing having a happy life. That's an important quality. Um, in the sense that if you were going back to music, if you were intending to play the piano, you bought a piano, you got a whole bunch of piano books for beginners, you got a teacher, uh, you hired her, you had one lesson, and now it's time for the second lesson, and you spend the whole time playing football or basketball or eating or whatever, and you don't practice the piano, okay? So the question is, are you going to learn to play the piano by not practicing the piano? That's a trick question, of course. Are you going to learn to play the piano by intentionally not practicing the piano? You can shake your head, yes. I mean, you understand that, right? Not practicing the piano is not going to give um, great lessons in learning to play the piano. But actually practicing the piano then will give you skills in playing the piano. Is this not true? Because you yes. can change yeah. that from, okay. So you can change that then the modality of playing the piano and practicing playing the piano into practicing happiness. If you practice happiness, you can develop it as a skill. If you don't practice happiness, if you practice dukkha, 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 going deep into dukkha, then that's what you wind up with is skill in dukkha. Makes sense. Makes sense, exactly. All right. And yet, this is one of the biggest problems that I see in the way that people are practicing uh, is, is that they're not, not making this first important connection of the actual teachings of the Buddha is Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda. Not Dukkha for this year, Dukkha for next year, and eventually someday we'll be free from Dukkha. That's not what it says. It says Dukkha, Dukkha Naroda immediately. So does get... the... Go Sorry. ahead. Uh, does the Naroda mean cessation? Yes. Well... Okay. Uh, let us say we can use that in the sense of many ways. Imagine that you had um, uh, a cow pie. You were going down through a cow pasture and you were just about to step on that cow pie. But then you see the cow pie and you don't step in it. Okay, that would be a form of Dukkha Naroda in the sense that you didn't step in it. Okay. If you had stepped in it, then it would be dukkha. I suppose that you don't want your foot and leg covered with cow pie. <laughs> yeah, I'd prefer not. 
Cal Fi, not Cal Pat. Cal Fi. Cal right. So we can think of, in fact, that our whole life is, is um, we, we live in a landscape that's absolutely um, not, not 100% filled with cow pies, but there's enough cow pies so that we have to watch where we're going. And if we don't watch where we're going, we're more than likely going to step in a cow pie. Okay, so this now is the idea then we have to use the practice that we're developing as a skill in that thing that we're calling meditation so that we can now get the, uh, uh, let us say, the watchfulness or the mental acumen to start living our lives by watching what's going on so that we don't step in it. And so this is the way that we, uh, that we practice in that sense of dukkha, dukkha naroda, is first to see the dukkha and then learn immediately to come out of it. Eventually, we see the dukkha before we even step in it. It's like dukkha, five seconds ahead. Be on alert. Watch what you're doing. And so um, this concept of dukkha, dukkha naroda, uh, breaks down into the Four Noble Truths. That you can see that Dukkha actually breaks into two Noble Truths in the sense of Dukkha does exist. And we can define Dukkha. And then we can say that Dukkha exists because of a cause. There's a reason or a rationale. There's a, um, a, um, a way of thinking that gives us Dukkha. And so uh, the second noble truth is uh, that there is a cause of suffering. Then the third noble truth is uh, often not talked about very much, but it actually is something that needs to be, um, let's say, investigated and understood, is to find a state where you are not in suffering. Now, a lot of people think that, oh, that's a high goal. Oh, no, During the, throughout the day, there have been moments and times when you're not in suffering. But most people are no, long, no more aware of those than they are when they are in suffering. And so learning this third noble truth in the sense of figuring out from time to time, wow, this is nice. <laughs> this is really good. Ain't no suffering here, Bob. That's the way that we want to look at it in the sense of being able to come out of that suffering, come out of our um, um, misery, our misunderstandings, our uh, disappointments, um, and come to a state of satisfaction, come into a state that we really like. Now, this kind of meditation actually does take... Um, on the full breadth of it. But generally what happens with, with meditators is, is that they want to go deep. They want to go deep into meditation. This is not a going deep kind of practice of the Buddha. There's no reason to go deep, that in fact, if you go deep and you stay deep for 24 hours, when you come out of deep, you may be in the hospital, you may be in the ICU, you may be in the morgue <laughs> because you're deep, and that's, uh, uh, but we can't live our lives deep. What the Buddhist teaching is, is how can we come out of suffering so we can live our lives happily, easily, gloriously, rather than living our lives as if we've gone deep someplace. And so this is one of the major mistakes that I see that uh, Western Buddhism has is the students think that they've got to go deep. What we're looking for is to go uh, often rather than deep. Go often in the sense of watching the mind and whenever there is something in the mind that is not suitable. Let's throw that out right now. Let's keep throwing it out so that we keep having a clear mind. How are we going to do that? That answer is the Eightfold Noble Path. But 
one of the problems with the English translation is is that Maga doesn't necessarily uh, uh, mean path, but they have the idea of Maga and Fala, or the path and the results of the path. But this is not actually a path. When we think of the word path, we talk we think about a word like um, we think about a trail or a destination or some place to go. And that kind of makes a mistake for the mind because we're not really going anywhere. This is not a, a path to the future uh, or to get someplace. Rather, this is a method of enjoying right now. And you can see that the word path and the word um, road have this ca this combination in the sense of uh, the word way, like we have, um, uh, oh, we have parkways and we have driveways. It's funny about that in, in, the, in the fact that driveways are where you park your car and parkways are where you drive your car. But never mind. <laughs> We're talking about the word way, but the way does not necessarily mean a, a, a road or a pathway. What the word way means here is method, procedure, um, uh, practice. This is when we use the word Eightfold Noble Path, we'd, uh, much, we'd much be better off if we'd said the Eightfold Noble Method or the Eightfold Noble Technique. That would be another way of saying it. But Eightfold Noble Path gives us some wrong understanding. Suppose you think it's a journey, and it's not a journey, because here you are already, you've already arrived into this present moment. Here you are, and there's no place to go. The only thing that we have to do is just to sit and rest because we've already arrived. Here we are. <laughs> So a lot of Western uh, mentality gets brought into Buddhism in the form of Western culture. The Western culture has a major influence on Western Buddhism and that uh, it would be better for the Westerners to get a more Asian flavor of Buddhism. And so uh, this is, I've been in Thailand, by the way, for so many years now that I've kind of gotten the Asian way. I kind of understand it. Um, and so part of the, uh, uh, let us say, efforts to put in would be the effort to explain this so that the Western students can begin to practicing it correctly rather than wanting it uh, as a device to get something in the future. Um, there is a, um, a very famous phrase in the Pali, Ekamaga, which has to do with uh, the, the, the issue is the translation. How are we going to translate this? I think that Bhikkhu Bodhi has the best translation when he calls it the direct method. But in fact, I was quite uh, uh, surprised and found it humorous that Bhikkhu Buddhadasa used the word shortcut. And I thought that that was merely Santikaro's translation of what Bhikkhu Buddhadasa was saying and what he was saying in Thai, I don't know. But my friend Robert, who knows Thai very well, he says, oh no, this word that uh, that Santikaro uses from Bhikkhu Buddha Dasa's shortcut is in fact in Thailand the shortcut or the direct method. And so we can see the direct method as you, you want C and you're at A, you go directly from A to C. There's no reason to go to B first and then to C. That you can see it kind of like a triangle in the sense, are you going to go down and then over? Or are you going to go uh, by the hypotenuse? And so this is the direct method of the Buddha is to go directly to where we want to go. 
an example of that is uh, the advertisement on television is that, oh, if you buy this car, you'll be very happy. And so people think, oh, I'll be very happy if I buy that car, right? A, I'm unhappy now. B, I buy a car. C, I'll be happy. But the direct method is, no, go from A to C. Just be happy. You don't have to buy the car. This is the direct method, okay? Just go for it. Now, uh, within Western Buddhism, there has crept into uh, the, the language of, of two words. One is Vipassana, and the other one is uh, Samatha. Okay, uh, but there is a sutta that says if you have samatha, then practice vipassana. If you have vipassana, then practice samatha. But if you don't have either one, practice them both together. That practicing them both together then becomes the direct method, the direct approach. Just go there. Okay, so this is what we're practicing here is the anapanasati that brings us uh, the skills that are listed as the Eightfold Noble Path. And so we've talked about the first four or three of the items of the Eightfold Noble Path. Now let's go into the fourth one in some detail, because that fourth item of the, eight, of the uh, Four Noble Truths is the Eightfold Noble Path or the Eightfold Noble Method, which is actually a method of developing skills. So here are the skills that need to be developed. The first one is right view. Right view, you've already gotten a bit of right view or you wouldn't have called. Right view is, is that there is dukkha, but that's only the beginning of the right view. The, the, uh, the rest of the right view is dukkha neurota. There is dukkha and now there is no dukkha that we've been able to successfully avoid it. And as our right view um, let us say, improves through skill development, we get an overall view of things, that mostly what humans do is they take on a, uh, a viewpoint from themselves or a selfish point of view, to where real right uh, noble view is to see uh, not me and him, but to see us. So the using. <laughs> the other thing is what um, right view is all about, is become um, more overall, more global, more compassionate, capable of seeing more and more. And we'll talk about April Noble Path and the, uh, uh, the noble part of right view at a later time, but right now I'm just giving it as a basic introduction. The second skill to be developed, which is the important one by all means, and that is sati. Sati is actually the word that's gotten most common into English in the form of the word mindfulness. Now, me, I never heard of the word mindfulness until after I had heard of the, the Buddhist meditation. Never heard of the word mindfulness before, and now mindfulness seems to be um, uh, sneaking into all of the language. Uh, I even uh, just got an email um, that corporations need mindfulness. Now that's ridiculous. That's ridiculous. Corporations don't need mindfulness. If the people who work for that corporation had mindfulness, they might leave that corporation. <laughs> <laughs> but corporations themselves, they don't exist except in the minds of humans. But we'll get into the, into the reality of corporations at a different time. The important point here is that uh, the word in Pali, sati, has a more fundamental meaning than the word mindfulness. And it has the more uh, uh, fundamental meaning is the meaning of to remember, or basically to wake up. Wakey, wakey. Now, generally, in meditation, there are various stages 
of waking up. And so I'll give you the analogy that when you wake up first, first wake up in the morning, let's say the alarm goes off and you wake up. Very few people jump right out of bed. Almost everyone stays in bed. They're only awake enough to know that they're awake, but they're not awake enough yet to actually get out of bed. All right? So within our practice of Anapanasati, when we talk about sati of waking up, that means we want to wake up enough to get out of the bed. We have to wake up enough to do the job. Most of the time, Westerners, when they have sati, when they wake up, they only wake up enough to see what's going on, but not enough to do anything about it. Now, I'll give you um, a different example. In fact, the Zen stick and the Zen master is a really excellent example, but I'll give it that later. Right now, we'll say that uh, boot camp in the Army, everybody knows uh, of the routine. They've seen the movies to where uh, if the um, recruits that are in boot camp are supposed to get up at 6 in the morning, then the drill instructor is going to come banging his stick at a minute or two or five minutes before wake-up wake time at six, and he's going to be screaming and yelling and banging his uh, uh, baton, and uh, uh, everybody's going to jump right out of bed immediately because they know what's going to happen if they stay and linger in bed. But at home, you have the option of, oh, well, I just don't want to wake up right now. I'm going to sort of ho-hum and go back to sleep, All right? Well, we do that with our meditation practice also, that we only wake up a little bit. But I'm, I'm exhorting you now to recognize that, no, there's various levels of waking up, and you want to wake up as much as you can to become as bright and as sharp and as, <gasps> yeah, I'm up, I've got it. Okay, so this is the kind of sati that we're wanting to develop. It's, going, it's a skill to be developed, a skill of waking up. The third skill is the skill of right effort. And this is an important one. Uh, that as the skill develops, the effort becomes smaller. But in the very beginning, there can be a certain amount of effort that's needed. And if there wasn't effort that was needed, the Buddha would have not put it as part of the Eightfold Noble Path. That effort is a skill to be developed. Then the next one, or the fourth one, is right attitude. That's also a skill to be developed. Now let's put them together and see how the actual practice of Anapanasati works. Number one, the word anapanasati means in and out breathing mindfulness. Okay, to, to watch the breathing coming in and out. Now, some groups <clears throat> practice, oh, you only have to watch the breath. You don't have to do anything about it. But the Buddha says, no. Basically, what we're talking about is, is that we know an in-breath as a long in-breath and that we know the out-breath as a long out-breath. Now, this long breathing is different kind of breathing than normal breathing. And it does have the quality that if you are actually beginning to control the breath, you can be on it because you're there to do it. You're there to control it. You're making sure that it's a long, deep in-breath, and you're making sure that it's a long, deep out-breath. And that actually kind of ties the mind to the breathing. And this is taking a bit of effort to do this. So the long, deep breathing and uh, in and the long, deep breathing out means that every breath you have two opportunities for sati to remember because this is going to be remembering to take a long breath, remembering to exhale in a long out breath. And 
uh, we get into the habit of doing this, and so the effort comes down. But if we forget about it completely, then the breathing will go back to normal. Now, when I say normal, we mean very conservative. That the that the human uh, anatomy with the uh, uh, the automatic breathing is uh, to do it um, only at a little bit, to where by breathing more intentionally, taking deeper breaths, we have um, now the ability to energize the body, that we get it energized by bringing in more oxygen. We also begin to purify the body by throwing stuff that's in the lungs out that a, a shallow breath won't do. And so this is a very healthy kind of breathing that we get into, of uh, breathing in long and breathing out long. Oxygenates the body. It actually makes the body more alive, tingling alive, in fact. And so we have to take the effort to take these deep breaths. Now, the next part is um, where right effort really comes into play. So we have two aspects of right effort. One is to uh, start controlling the breathing and taking deep, long breaths. The other one is um, to gladden the mind. This is the step of Anapanasati that is often missed, including, in fact, these are the two ingredients that I find most missing in uh, general practices is to actually control the breath by taking long, deep breaths, as it's specified in the sutta. And the other one is to gladden the mind, because gladdening the mind actually changes the mind. If we don't gladden the mind, then it's more than likely going to be going and staying in dukkha. Now, there was a time when uh, the Buddha was... Um, uh, under the bow tree in Bodh Gaya. Um, I won't go into the whole, whole story, but basically the story is he fell into a creek and he recognized that he was so weak from the austerities that he was doing that he couldn't get himself out of the creek. And so his question was, how can I become completely free from suffering if I can't even get up out of the creek? And he had already been doing a lot of meditation practices, jhanas and other kinds of things like that. And he recognized, no, that wasn't working. Austerities is not working. Um, let's go find out really what's going on. And this is when, uh, during that six-week period of time, that he put together this concept of the Four Noble Truths, the Eightfold Noble Path, and most specifically, how the mind works. Now, how the mind works uh, is, is referred to in the Pali as Paticca Samuppada, or dependent origination. And we'll begin to talk about that a lot. That, in fact, the way the mind works that winds up in suffering is the Second Noble Truth. And so, Patita Samapada is more of a very detailed understanding of the second noble truth. But in order to get our minds fit for work so that we can see the second noble truth in all of its detail, we actually need to develop the skills of this method. And so, these four skills of right view, right effort, or right sati, right effort, and right attitude. Uh, are the skills that need to be developed. The right, the right um, effort um, is, a, is an important point with sati. Basically, what, what I'm saying is, is that when the Buddha was practicing under the Bodhi tree, he came across one statement that completely revolutionized the practice. And that one statement was, Aha, I see you, Mara. Now, what that means is, is that, Aha, I can see the dukkha, or Aha, I can see the unwholesome thoughts in the mind.
Aha, I see you, Mara. Now, Mara is uh, the word itself has many different definitions. In fact, the second noble truth is referred to as Mara and his daughters. So Mara can be thought of as uh, Dukkha itself. Mara can be thought of as the devil. Mara can be thought of as the world out there. But in the case that we're talking about, aha, I see you, Mara, means aha, I can see the mind is being hindered right now, hindered from being happy, hindered from being in the state that I want to be in, that I'm not in the state that I would like to be in, I am instead in the state that I'm in the habit of being in. And when we say, aha, I see you, Myra, that means that now we have an opportunity to come out of that. Now, Myra generally is um, associated with um, self. And what we mean by self is basically selfishness, that we see things from a selfish perspective and a selfish point of view, and that selfishness is always around self-protection, that there is some sort of danger that the self needs to protect it from. But the reality is there is no danger, so we don't need to protect the self. So why do we go around feeling like we need to protect the self having a little bit of fear, a little bit of disease, where in fact there is no danger. I mean, look at the room that both of you are in and you can see, wait a minute, that room is actually quite safe. There's no gorillas, there's no snakes, there's no uh, gunslingers in that room. It's relatively <laughs> safe. So why then, if, the, if our environment is safe, why do we continue to feel unsafe? The answer is, is that we learned how to feel unsafe from the time when we were children. That really little kids, two and three and four and five uh, years old, um, they spend most of their time playing, joy. But they do spend a bit of time in tantrum when they don't get what they want. But kids generally are not in a state of tantrum. Generally, their little kids are in a state of joy. They play with their toys, they're curious, they're writing on the walls. So let's use that example, that the kid is writing on the wall for 10 or 15 minutes, really enjoying it, and then mom comes in and catches him writing on the wall, and she fusses at him, okay? Later on, that child is going to remember not how much fun he had for 10 or 20 minutes writing on the wall. What he's going to remember is, Mom came in and scolded me. Why is that? Why don't we all just remember all the good times and forget about all the bad times? The answer to that is it's ingrained, built into our programming. It's instinctual. And the instinct is self-preservation. So the little kid who's writing on the wall then goes into self-preservation mode. And he begins to develop a habit of being in self-preservation mode when in fact it's not really dangerous. Now 100,000, maybe 600,000, a million years ago, things were really dangerous. And we needed that self-preservation instinct. But in modern society, we don't need it so much, and yet it's a hangover from our past. And part of the way that that hangover uh, perpetuates is because the fears of the parent are passed on to the child needlessly. And so these, these feelings of anguish, anger, grief, sadness, um, and fear uh, that we're all capable of in, uh, instinctually become the primary way that we feel by the time that we're adults. Not all the time. Every day you do something that feels good. You sit down to lunch and you enjoy a bite or you uh, watch a television show and you get your mind off your bars and problems and you feel pretty good. Everybody feels pretty good during the day sometime or another. A few people don't, but they wind up in great misery. They wind up being, let us say, um, um, oh, uh, 
go-getters or they wind up in prison. Many of them wind up as CEOs. Many of them wind up in politics because they're just going all the time. They cannot find a way of relaxing and feeling good about themselves. So what this practice of Anapanasati is, is to bring us back to a, a more natural, normal state in the sense that our life is not dangerous. Our life is really good, but very few of us have the um, uh, opportunity to enjoy it because we're stuck in the old bad habits that we uh, developed through our childhood. And so basically what the practice is, is is beginning to develop new habits to replace the old habits. If we continue uh, practicing the old habits, then things are not going to change very much. And so our old habit patterns, uh, let us say, become predictable. We can see how things are going. And our society has a whole lot of language that's built in to show that. An example is, he who lives by the sword dies by the sword. And that also gives the idea that a leopard can't change his spots, that the fruit doesn't fall far from the tree, uh, that Johnny's just being Johnny. Uh, oh, uh, let us say, uh, uh, boys will be boys. Okay, all of this excuse for bad behavior continues the bad behavior. When I say bad, I mean bad not in the sense of uh, actually hurting other people, but at least bad in the sense that the, that person is harming himself. So, here we are now with this point of view of, can we see this stuff? Can we wake up enough to say, uh-huh, I see you, Mr. Bad Habit. I see you, Mr. Anxiety. I see you, Mr. Worry. I see you, Mr. Uh, uh, digging in the past to try to um, find a solution to a problem or digging into the future trying to solve a problem. Where, in fact, right in this very moment, you've got no problems. Humans wind up kind of thinking that, in fact, we've become problem-solving machines. But humans are not. Really what humans are is we're pattern-matching machines. We're pattern recognition machines. We can recognize patterns. And from that gives us the idea that because we can recognize patterns, we can recognize truth. That may not be the case. But we can recognize patterns. But one of the things that we mistakenly understand is that pattern-matching uh, machine then becomes a problem-solving machine. And so we begin to think that life is a problem to be solved. And so we go around thinking about, oh, I feel this way, means I've got some problem to solve. If I can solve that problem, then I'll feel better. But generally, people just go from one problem to the next problem, they solve that one, and then there's a new problem, and they really haven't changed the way that they feel at all. In other words, they keep going from A to B to A to B to A to B, and they never get the result of C that they were looking for in the first place. So let's not go from A to B to A to B. Let's just go to A to C and, and be there. Going directly. This is, the, this is the way of looking at then Anapanasati is when we wake up. Sufficiently enough, our effort then is to say, aha, I see you, Mara. I see you, anxiety. I see you, sleepiness, or whatever it is. Aha, I see you. And that aha, I see you now is put something new already in the mind. You know, the mind is actually quite fast. The Buddha says, in fact, that the mind is so fast that he doesn't even have an analogy for how fast the mind is. But normally, without guidance, that fastness just moves from object to object, jumping around, something like a monkey in a tree, just jumping and jumping and jumping from one thought to the next. In fact, that's become quite 
uh, famous within Buddhism. It's been around for centuries, but the idea of the monkey mind, that the mind just jumps from here to there to the other things back and forth. And that in and of itself is kind of restless in the sense that we're not really at peace at all. We're just having the mind jumping around. When we wake up, we can say, aha, I see you jumping around, mind. And now the mind is not jumping around so much. Now the mind is, in fact, paying attention to what's going on in this present moment. So this is basically what, what right effort is all about, is coming out of whatever was in the mind, whatever hindrance was there, and coming into this present moment coming into this here-now state. And that effort has the two qualities of one is to fix the mind and two to fix the breathing at the same time. In fact, what we're learning to do is we're learning to control the mind and learning control the breath. And eventually then, with the skills that we're developing there, we'll learn to control the way that we feel also. Because if you had a choice between feeling blah and feeling ordinary or maybe a little bit worried about what you've got to do tomorrow or being a state of complete joy and happiness, I think everybody would change and say, oh, I would prefer to be in a state of joy and peace and happiness rather than in a state of turmoil. Wouldn't you agree? Yeah. Well, so why do we spend so much time in turmoil? Why don't we just spend our time in joy? Habit. Precisely. We're in the habit of feeling bad when, in fact, we can develop the habit of feeling good. That's what Anapanasati is really all about. Now, as we're practicing this and bringing the mind back into a state of uh, uh, feeling good, and we can start with that one in the sense of, aha, I see you, Mara. That the point, aha, that's the one that we're looking for. Aha, I see you, Myra. Not, oh no, there's Myra again. Oh no, another hindrance. Okay. Because why? Because that kind of feeling is our normal feeling. But aha, I got you. Aha, I can see you. Now we're beginning to develop a new attitude. The attitude of being a winner, not a loser. The attitude of being able to come to this present moment and enjoy life rather than being stuck trying to solve problems from the past, thinking that if I can get all my problems solved, then I can be happy. No, if you spend all your time solving all your problems, then that just makes you good at solving more problems, and off you go, stuck in problem solving. When are we ever going to get to the point that we've got no problems? We solved them all. How do we do that? Every problem that comes to mind, out you go, out you go. I just solved you, you're gone now. <laughs> and so we begin to practice this as a skill in our uh, sitting practice, to begin to keep the mind cleaned out and having the kind of thoughts then that you want to have. So that's the first part of learning to control the mind is to wake up to see what's going on. And then the second part of the training of the mind is to make sure that we're giving ourselves wholesome, valuable, good thoughts as opposed to having unwholesome thoughts. Well, what kind of thoughts would be wholesome thoughts? Well, in the beginning right now, thoughts about this present moment, thoughts about the breathing, Thoughts about what's happening right now. Thoughts about, wow, this is nice. Wow, this is good third noble truth. I'm really glad to be here. I'm glad to throw all of that stuff out and be comfortable and happy. Okay, so we start to think about this present moment. If you think of it this way, all of your problems are either in the past or in the future. But right now you've got no problems. Almost always the present moment is problem-free. Almost always our problems are either in the past or in the future. 
but generally right now is good. So if we can be in the here now, then we got no problem. It's almost magical thinking, I know, but it's true. That the present moment, you got, I mean, look around right now. You got no problems. There's no problems around right now, are they? Not really. The only kind of problems you got is the ones you can think up. <laughs> and so learning to not think up problems and learning to be satisfied with this present moment is what the real practice is all about for the Buddha. Not going deep and getting deep insights from going deep into dukkha but rather to see it just enough to throw it out. Get it out of here. Let's come back to a state of this really pleasant and easy going. The Buddha had a name for himself. He called himself Tathagata. Have you ever heard of that word before? Tagatha. Yes. Tathagata. What does the word Tathagata mean? It means actually it's a combination of two words, Tathata and Ga. And the word ga is the word to come or to go. And the word uh, tatata or tata means this present moment or thusness or here it is or this. This is the word for uh, in Buddhism that we have that uh, Ram Das uh, used in the sense of be here now. The Buddha didn't have that word be here now. But he did have the word thusness or suchness or being in the present moment. Um, Eckhart Tolle uses the term this present moment. So this is, this is basically the goal, but it's not a permanent long distance or far away goal. It's our instantaneous immediate goal is to come out of whatever we're thinking about in the past or in the future and come into the present moment right now and to enjoy it. Enjoy this present moment right now, exactly the way that it is. And so we can have then the kind of thoughts that are associated with this wonderful present moment. Like, this is third noble truth, wow! Or yeah, I feel really good right now. Or the body feels really good. I feel strong. I feel oxygenated. I feel tingly alive. And so we begin to think about this present moment and our relationship to it and being in the present moment to become part of our environment. Another way of thinking about it is, is that within Buddhism we have six senses. We have the eyes, the ears, the nose, the, uh, um, the, the t uh, taste, and uh, touch. Basically, within touch or within the body, we have two. We have the, the, uh, the sensory awareness of touch of the outside of the skin, but we also have something really deep, a proprioceptic system, that allows you to know the positions of the body. You don't have to open your eyes and look at your feet to see where they are. You know where they are. You know where they are. All you have to do is, uh, let us say, become mindful of them or to wake up to what the feet are doing, and you know exactly what they're doing. You can wiggle the toes, and you know how the toes wiggle without having to look at the toes with your eyes. How do you know that? It's not sensory awareness in the sense of touch. It's something much deeper. But this proprioceptic and touch, the taste, the smell, the eyes, and the ears are how we gather information and how we store information. And therefore, any stored information is going to be coming back out in the form of these five senses. The problem is in the storage. There's three problems with storage. One is, is that we don't get all the information in. Our, our senses are not capable of getting all of the information. An example of that is we don't have uh, night vision. We have to have night vision goggles for that. Or that uh, bees uh, know when a, a field of flowers has been picked because of the, uh, the ultraviolet light of those flowers changes because the bees have been there, that you and I, we could not get the hunter out of a field of flowers, we'd destroy the field. 
but the but the uh, the bees can just look and say, "Oh, that flower over there, and this one's here," and they just go right to the flower. Why? Because they can see things we can't see. Then when we store things, we don't store them correctly because we store them based upon old stuff that we already know. And then later when we dig that stuff back out, our memory becomes kind of rotting and selective so that we don't remember things correctly. So we don't get them in there, we don't store them right, and then we can't get them back out right. This is human memory. It's a faulty system. And yet somehow or another, we're taught in our society to rely heavily upon that. And if you don't know the answer, to guess, which leaves in children in the state of confusion and anxiety around not knowing. To where, in fact, humans are completely ignorant. I mean, there is so much to know that we don't know. The question is, are we going to approach that stuff through um, anxiety and doubt and fear, or are we going to do it through curiosity? And so part of one's right effort then, and gladdening the mind, is to change our doubt into curiosity so that we can become curious. And now we begin to do our investigation through a sense of curiosity rather than from a sense of doubt and unsuredness and, and don't know uh, and doubting and guessing. That we become curious. And so with that curiosity, that actually is a part of one's right effort and part of one's right attitude. So the one that I'm going to uh, give to you now is the attitude and normally we uh, develop the attitude as children, we develop the attitude of being a victim or a loser or a one down. For instance, all the adults are bigger than we are. We can't put our own clothes on. We can't feed ourselves. And so we start off in a state of dependency. And it's really hard for a human being to come out of that state of dependency that we get ourselves into when we're young. That state of dependency, then, I will call the victim's position. The victim is one who needs help. If we needed help getting our clothes on when we were a year old, then that means that we're going to need help from uh, a psychiatrist or a psychologist to come out of our suffering. Or maybe we need a God or a Jesus or something to help us, or a mommy. Uh, sorry to interrupt. I'm gonna. I have to head to bed. It's really late here. Um, okay. Thank you so can much. Can you hang on? Can you hang on another ten minutes? I think I can. Yeah. Yeah, we're about finished. Okay. So let's uh, let's hang in there for uh, a bit. Um, the the attitude then is basically what we're looking for to change. The change of the attitude from this is hard. I'm not I sure I can do it. I'm, I'm full of doubt into the attitude of, yes, I can. I can do this. I can clean the mind out. No matter how uh, uh, hindered the mind becomes, I can clean it out and come to a state of satisfaction, a state of joy. So this is basically the practice of Anapanasati seen only through the lens of the Eightfold Noble Path. All right, and so basically only the first four steps of the Eightfold Noble Path. One's right view, right action, right sati, and then right attitude. Right attitude is what we're developing eventually, and as we do, our right view comes stronger. But the primary goal is to develop sati, to wake up, to wake up, to wake up. When we wake up, the first thing we do is we gladden the mind, and we take a deep breath. And then we get into a state of satisfaction and try to maintain it. That's basically the whole thing that I can give you in, in one, one talk or one lecture, is to find a way of bringing yourself into a state of joy and satisfaction and learn how to maintain that. Now, that's not the entire teaching, of course. 
there's a lot more to it than that. But this is the basic goal that we have, is to wake up out of our normal life, our normal ways of thinking, and start thinking and having good, wholesome thoughts. Thoughts about this present moment. And so uh, students will ask, well, how long should I do this? And the answer to that, I would rather you do it short, several times a day, than long, once a day. So if you have, say, I'm going to meditate an hour a day, I would say, instead, do Anapanasati for 15 minutes, four times a day. Or maybe 10 minutes, five times a day. Or maybe 10 minutes for 10 times a day. Up to you. So this is the way that we would practice, is to, to get ourselves away from it all. That, that you want to turn off the TV or uh, get away from the laptop or get away from any books and just sit down and be on your own for about 10 minutes with the intention that I'm going to really enjoy this 10 minutes. And every time I catch myself not enjoying this 10 minutes and going back into the ordinary mind, I'm going to remember and say, aha, I caught you. And this is the way to, uh, to go. This is the, the first introduction. I could go a lot, a lot further into that, especially with the aha, I caught you, Mara, is actually disassociating ourselves from that suffering. For instance, if you're angry, then people will say, I am angry, or I am sad, or I am frustrated, which means the anger is who I am in that moment. But when we can say, aha, I can see you, frustration, that means that I am no longer the frustration, that the frustration is out here. So most people are like this, I am angry. But this technique is, I see you, Myra, I see you, anger, I see you, uh, uh, wonky mind. And by doing so, we've disassociated, we've pulled ourselves out, we've become not selfish in that moment. Because we are not the anger. We are not the selfishness. We see it instead. And by seeing it, we become free from it immediately. If we wake up strongly. So in the Anapanasati practice, should we be uh, focusing on the long breaths as well? As, in addition to feeling good? Rather than focusing, I would say to remember to remember the long breath. Now, what's going to happen uh, possibly before you call is, is that you'll have ideas saying, well, I can watch the breath, but still there are thoughts there, the background thoughts. The answer to that is, no, they're not in the background at all. They're right here. Sometimes you're watching the breath. Sometimes you're watching the thoughts. Sometimes you're watching the breath. Sometimes you're watching the thoughts. So uh, sometimes there are thoughts there. So what we need to do with those thoughts even is to bring them back to the here now. Let's have thoughts about the breathing. Let's have thoughts about the present moment. Let's have thoughts about what we're doing. Let's not let the mind wander away. Let's start uh, having the mind perform the function of staying on topic to be here now rather than letting it wander away. And then it will wander away. Never mind. I caught you again. I'll, I see you, Myra. I see you wandering mind. Come back. Start again. Be happy. And it'll wander away again. Never mind. Come back. Start again. So this is the way that we practice over and over and over again. Okay, thank you very much. All right, so, we'll, do you have any final questions? Cole? I think my big question is around, like, like I think people in the West, especially, like, I've noticed with myself, I apply way too much effort, and I catch myself, like, sort of making things a lot more unpleasant from that effort. Yes, um, that's right. Only the smallest amount of effort to get the job done. And yet I see students a lot. They strain and they struggle and they're trying to control their mind. They're trying to go deep. 
Okay, right? yeah, that's don't don't try to go deep. Don't don't struggle with it. Just enjoy. Okay. Aha! I caught you. Because when we work too hard, it's I caught you, I caught you, I caught you. You know, and then, no, no, it's too much work. <laughs> Make it easy and enjoyable. If, because that's the goal of your whole life, wouldn't you say that your goal, your goal in life, would to would to live a happy, joyful, easygoing life, free from problems? Oh yeah. All right. Well, let's do that. Let's practice doing that. Sounds great. Okay. So the last thing to do. To find out when you guys are going to be calling back again. I would suggest two or three days. You practice what we've talked about so far and then come back and we'll get some more. All right. Any questions that you have or whatnot? That sounds good. How do you like to schedule this? Should I just email you? I'm sorry, what was that question? Oh, should I just email you to, to find a time? Or No, no, just call. Here's Here's the protocol. Call and leave a note. If you leave a note only, I may not see it. If you call, I'll probably hear it. But if you call and I'm on another call or if I'm away, then hang around for 5 or 10 or 20 minutes or so because I might come back. I probably will. Uh, or I'll finish the call I'm on. Okay? okay? So that's the way to do it is to both call, but I don't make appointments. Please, yeah. I don't know them. <laughs> <laughs> That's for the people in the world. I don't live in the world. I live on this porch. <laughs> so <laughs> I don't I don't keep appointments. Sounds good. Thank you so much for your time. Okay. Yeah, thank you so All much. Right. This is great. All right. Well we'll see you guys later. Goodbye. It's Wednesday now. Maybe by Saturday or the weekend you can call, okay? Okay. That sounds, sounds good. Great. Bye bye. <laughs>